that title that you see before you, The Christ Connection. It's an appropriate one today because along with the message theme, we're going to be celebrating some people who connect people to Christ. Later today, for Miss Tiffany Gurgel and Mrs. Nancy Moses, 25 years of teaching ministry, of working with those kids, the, not just the kids, but even the families. And not just hours in the classroom. I, people get here at 7 o'clock in the morning, and uh, for both of them, often evenings are even involved with extracurricular activities. And we thank them for their dedicated time. And also Sue Aldricks. Uh, who worked with, a lot with the little ones and uh, does a lot of things uh, around the, the, the church as well in cooking. And uh, we're going to celebrate the many years that she has served at Trinity as well. We thank them for the blessings that they have been to us as special gifts from God. Dear friends in Christ, it was during the Battle of Britain in World War II that Winston Churchill had made a profound face and he said, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And I would say that these words continue for us Christians who are disciples of Jesus, servants of him. And even today, we know that we face consistently overwhelming obstacles. Paul's words today in his letter to the Romans you know, can assure us that Churchill's words could also be used to describe the Lord's movement in our lives, and also in that world that we live. You know, we can read through Romans, and we can talk about such things as the gospel, justification, righteousness from God, baptized into Christ, buried with him, and being in Christ. And Paul even uses words like Lord and Messiah to refer to Jesus. And naturally, we also have to consider Romans chapters 9 through 11 and how those chapters fit in in the argument of Romans. You know, we can all probably recite Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The sentence there is, you know, probably where we stop often, Right? But the sentence actually continues. It says, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And you don't see those words stamped on confirmation certificates or a lot of times on greeting cards, those last words that you might find at stores. Well, we want to make Romans into a a doctrinal, a teaching type of essay a lot of times. And to eliminate words like Jew and Gentile or unity. But the text keeps reminding us. And then again, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then the following verses, Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. It keeps coming. And he addresses the Jews directly in verses 12 through 29 of that same chapter, where you can't avoid the issue of Jew and Gentile or the law, circumcision. It's all there. And then you get to chapter 3, and it kicks off with this verse. What advantage then is there of being a Jew? Much in every way, he says. 
Well, really not much in every way because later in that chapter, Paul says the whole world will be accountable and held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's law sight by the works of the law. Remember that Torah that the Jews had followed. So, what's the answer? How does righteousness happen then? It's one word. Christ. Messiah. Or two words. In Christ. In Messiah. Well, by the end of chapter 3, we, we like to stop at verse 28, don't we? For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But Paul keeps going right on with verse 29. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that being the Jews, and the uncircumcised through that same faith, the Gentiles. I could keep going through Romans, but to summarize, chapter 4 is about the descendants of Abraham. Guess what? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. Yeah, right? But Paul, he continues even in chapter 9, he says this too, to affirm it. It's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In chapters 5 through 8, well, they go on to describe this new life in Christ that we have. It's not lived on the basis of that law, but by the Spirit. Chapter 5, in Adam we've all been one huge rebellious man. But in Jesus Christ, we have been all one Jew and Gentile alike, one righteous man. In chapter 6, how did that happen? Well, Paul says, baptism, buried with Christ, that new man rising daily to new life. Chapter 7, well, sin, it's exposed for what it is, and that is death. Chapter 8, the spirit and the restoration of all creation, and because of that, we have hope. How do we know that? Well, Paul concludes, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that Paul's cleared the table and he's saying that everything is in Christ, in the Messiah, now he can finally get to the main course, the meat, which is Romans 9 through 11, of which our reading is a part of. The question might be, well, has God failed? You know, he gave Israel everything. He gave them the call, the promises, the covenant. He gave them the right worship, everything. And through them would come in that human line the Messiah himself. But now here's the hard part. You know, Paul says not all who are of Israel are Israel. The problem is Romans 9 through 11 comes after chapters 1 through 8. And Paul has just spent eight tightly argued chapters explaining that no one is without excuse except for those who are in Christ. And he can't change his mind in these last three chapters now. It says here, in this way all Israel will be saved. This is from the New International Version, NIV. And there's a period there which is actually wrong. 
In other translations, there's a comma. Because it's not saying that all of, of Israel, as we know of Israel even today, will be saved. There's a comma. It says, as it is written, the deliverer, being Jesus, will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul had already told us in chapters 1 through 8, you know, it's by the Messiah, Jesus. It's being baptized into Christ. So who is Israel? We all are Israel, those who have faith in Christ. At the beginning of chapter 11, Paul, he really makes a stark, direct claim. He says this, you know, did God reject his people? By no means, he says. Previously, he had based that on Old Testament stories and theology, but now he bases that claim on himself and on what God has done in his life. We saw that Paul is an educated man. In that one reading, you know, he talks about his ancestry. We know that he was a rather distinguished Jew. He was one who was a conservative, traditional observer of the law. He was one who said, you know, I'm going to oppose this thing called the way. People who were following Jesus at that time, who was known as the way, the truth, and the life. Later we know they're called Christians. He didn't just voice his opposition, but he was actively persecuting those early disciples of Christ. He'd be throwing them into prison, and he'd be standing there also watching as they were executed. In his writings, Paul had considered himself now the chief of sinners. He had lived in opposition to God before God had called him. And that's why Paul was amazed that Jesus would even single him out, appear to him on that road to Damascus, forgive Paul, and also to give him the ability to have faith through the Spirit and to respond to God's grace in that faith. Paul wasn't the only imperfect person in the Bible. We know that. Go all the way back to even like Jacob. You know, he was a trickster. He was one who lied. And yet he was known as a father of the Jewish people. Moses, he was a murderer with a speech impediment. He stuttered. King David committed adultery and murder. The disciple Peter denied Jesus. And the list of imperfect people is really endless, both in the scripture and in the history of the church. You can take, for example, too, a man named John Newton, the writer of that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. You know, he was a captain on a ship that was in the slave trade, and he was raised with minimal exposure to those religious practices and teachings. And he found himself calling out to the Lord in the storm, help me, have mercy on me. In the midst of that storm that threatened to sink his ship, that's where it took place. And later, he referred to that event as the great deliverance. And the fact that God had reached out to him and had drawn Newton to himself, even after what Newton had done and who he was, God inspired him to write those beautiful words of amazing grace. God is a steadfast God. He's unmovable. According to Paul, the Lord will not stop moving in the lives of the 
Jews, drawing them into a faithful relationship with him. And God will not stop moving in our lives to draw us into even a closer relationship with him that we already have by faith. There's one special verse to take a look at. It had an interesting word. It said, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. How'd that word get there? Well, it's a word that means irreversible, permanent, constant, certain, changeless. You see, this chapter 11 is about God. It's how he dealt with human sin in the Messiah in Christ. There's no other name. There's no other way, even for Israel. And so Israel is reduced to one, namely Jesus Christ. He's the perfect Israel. The King James has it right in its translation. It says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And that Greek word for irrevocable literally means without regret. God, he's not really sorry at all that he called Israel. He doesn't wish he had gone with another nation, maybe one that was more prosperous than Israel or even greater in number. No, God's plan all along was that through Israel, through Abraham, would come the seed, the seed Jesus, that would bring, who would bring life. God doesn't regret calling Israel. He calls her still, even today, in Christ. That Greek word is not a common one. It's only used here in this verse and also in 2 Corinthians 7.10 where it says about regret. God isn't repenting. He's sticking to his plan. And he's the one who knows all things. We know that he wants one people in Christ. One people even as we sang that hymn before our message. Godly grief over sin, well, that's connected to repentance. This is something we should stand up for. This is what we should ask God for and celebrate it, too. We should claim the truth of our sin without regret. There was a Time magazine article that talked about the declining numbers of Roman Catholics going to confession. And we know that confessing our sins in a a culture that we are living in today where everything is relative, it really isn't popular these days. And yet that's why our liturgies, our orders of service, even as we worship, they still use the corporate language of confession. During the first weeks of the month, we usually say about the sins that we have done and what we have left undone. And even earlier today, we said also, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. The place of confession and repentance, it's not in a place of worldly grief. It's a place of honesty. And when we regret our sin, that is to claim that in the same breath, we also get God's mercy. God is faithful as he loves us and as he moves in our lives. And the Lord does this because of who he is. And not because of who we are. We've got nothing to be proud of in our relationship to God. In Romans eleven twenty, Paul says that you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. 
So we're not to be proud, but in faith to stand in awe of what God has done and what he continues to do. This is really an echo of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a verse you know, where God tells his people, he says, I require this. Love kindness. Seek justice. Walk humbly before your God. Paul anticipates that those Roman Christians, well, they're going to respond to this letter that he wrote with questions like, why? You know, how will God do this? How will God bring about the people of Israel back into a relationship with him? Like any good theologian, Paul answers basically, I don't know. I haven't a clue. In reality, though, Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, only God knows. God's a little too big for us, isn't he? You know, God works mysteriously in our lives and sometimes that in ways only God can see. We know that God has used a blinding flash of light. He's even used a voice from heaven. He's used a burning bush and a storm on the sea to get his people's attention. Sometimes God uses quieter means to do that, to draw us to him, like a a listening ear, a warm smile, a really heartfelt hug, or simply the gift of his presence with us each and every day. There will be times when we can rest in that assurance that at the very core of our being, we know that God is really embracing us with his love and grace. And there's other times, too, that we may not sense God's movement in our lives. There's even times where we may feel that God is farther away. He's distant than he is so near to us and in us. Whatever our situation is, we can remember Paul's words No, God has not rejected his people. And he hasn't forsaken us because we know that God is a God of love. And that's what keeps us connected with Christ. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all of our understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, who is your Lord and Savior. Amen. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.